0: Well, good morning, LifePoint fam. If we haven't met yet, my name is Dan. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Worthington campus alongside Jason Phillips, who is our campus life pastor. We are so grateful uh, that you are here with us today, whether you're listening online later on at some point in the week or here with us in person on Sunday morning. We're just grateful that you are a part of what God is doing here at the Worthington campus. Hey, if this is your first time with uh, LifePoint or maybe for the last couple weeks, you've been checking us out from a distance and waiting to figure out what your best next step is. Let me make it super easy for you uh, to take that next step. You can take out your phone and you can scan that QR code right on the back of the seat in front of you, or uh, you can go to lpguest.com. That's going to bring up a web page for you where you can either find sermon notes to follow along in some of the scripture that we're looking at today, or uh, there is a guest card. We'd love for you to take a minute to fill out that guest card. Uh, It just gives us a bit of information helps us to follow up with you later on this week and as a way to say thank you for just being here and being a part today uh, we're going to make a five dollar donation to one of our partner ministries in your honor if you fill out one of those cards Alright, if you have a Bible with you, why don't you open up with me to the New Testament book of Revelation. New Testament book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 21-22 today. This is the last book of the Bible, the last two chapters in the Bible. Uh, just flip to the end of your Bibles. If you're looking at charts and maps, you may be in Revelation, but you're probably you know, past the book at that point. You need help finding it. Uh, you can turn to the table of contents. That is your friend, no judgment here from me And I'm going to say this from the beginning, uh, that today I think is going to be a heavy day for us. This is a heavy message. We're talking about some very weighty things. And so I would just ask that one, uh, as I'm preaching today, you'd, you'd pray for me while we're preaching, that God would use my words to speak to us, the, to deliver things that we as a community need to hear. Uh, and I ask that you hang with me to the end. This may bring up some very hard memories for you or some things that you have navigated in your own life. And I promise while we go through what feels like the valley of the shadow of death for a moment, we will get to the other side. We will not end in hopelessness. Like I said, this is the last book of the Bible, last two chapters of the Bible. And in many ways in Revelation, God is tying up all of the loose ends in the whole story of the Bible. And really the human story and as I've been working on this message, preparing for today, I have this image that I, I keep coming back to in my mind's eye. I want to describe it for you. Picture, picture like this uh, pristine, beautiful diamond. How many of you remember having to go uh, to pick out a, an engagement ring when you were getting engaged? Right, you remember you have to buy both things. You have to buy a ring, a band, and you have to buy the diamond. And they'll, they'll show you all the, the nicest diamonds. I, you know, I, I had told them right away, like, "Hey, you don't you don't need to show me the nicest diamonds. Give me like uh, the third tier. That, that's what I can afford. That was the budget Courtney and I were on at the time." But picture this perfect diamond, no no blemishes, clear, pristine. And and what do you do with a diamond like that? When you take that diamond, you don't shove it away in a drawer somewhere to just know that you have it stored away. We set it in a ring so that we can see it. We put it on display, that we can enjoy what it is. And so what I want to do today is I want us to think about the book of Revelation and the, the holistic story that Revelation is telling, that God will one day make all things right, all things new. I mean, that's the storyline through the book of Revelation, that that is like this beautiful diamond, but... For us to enjoy that, to to see it and appreciate it for what it really is, we're going to set it in a ring. And I want to spend some time today, and a good chunk of our time today, uh, exploring the setting for the diamond that is Revelation. What we see in the story of Revelation is that it actually speaks to one of the deepest, the hardest, most painful, and perhaps most important questions that human beings can ask. And this is a question that religious people ask. It's a question that non-religious people ask. No matter where you are at, what your background is, there is some version of this question that you have, are, or will ask at some point in your life. And we do not simply ask this question. We wrestle deeply with it. But not only does the story of Revelation address this question, I believe we'll see that it gives one of the most satisfying answers to that question out of any other worldview, any other religion, or any other belief system. May of 2015 was one of the best months of my life. If you can even think about life in that way and kind of boil it down to high points, I I look at May of 2015 as a high point in my life. Courtney and I had just moved to a new apartment. We were off of uh, campus housing, married student housing, the Moody Bible Institute in downtown Chicago. And I had just gotten hired at our first church in Chicago. Uh, We were living just down the street. As a baseball fan, I loved this. We were two blocks away from where the Chicago White Sox play. And so uh, during baseball season, we'd go out and people would be handing out tickets because the Sox weren't very good. And we'd get tickets and go and, you know, watch games whenever we wanted. I loved this season. It also happened to be the month where we found out that Courtney and uh, Courtney was pregnant. And I know it's a bit cliche, but when I found out that we were going to have a baby in the same moment, I was unbelievably excited to be a dad and terrified about being a parent. And so we did what a lot of couples do. We waited a little while to say anything to family and friends. And after a couple of weeks, you know, we set up the appointment with a doctor to check in on our baby to make sure Courtney's hormones level levels were right, make sure the docs were seeing everything they needed to be seeing so that we were on track. And, and I remember vividly in that first meeting that nurse sitting down to explain to us that we were going to need to come back in a few days uh, because she wasn't, wasn't yet seeing what she needed to see with the ultrasound that, and maybe it was just a bit too early. We didn't need to be alarmed, but for the next five weeks, we were plunged into this rhythm of going to the doctor every other day so that they could check Courtney's levels again and see if there were progress. And we'd leave with really good news that things were looking better. We were on track and then we'd get a follow-up call saying, Hey, we need, we need you to come back. And and we get the not-so-good news. Courtney was definitely, definitely pregnant. But the doctor couldn't find our baby's heartbeat. And in late July of that year, we lost our child through a miscarriage. And the pain of that moment was so deep, when it happened, I, I remember Courtney and I just sitting together, weeping. And I didn't really know how to process it as a husband or uh, a father. I, I didn't know what to do with that. And I kind of went into a shell. And uh, Courtney and I didn't really talk for a while. Because we both were trying to wrestle through this together. For months after that, I'd walk in on Courtney. And she's just crying to herself, thinking about it. And there was, and to some extent still is, this strange mix of emotions. I mean, we were heartbroken, confused. And for me, I I was angry. I was angry at God. Because I wanted to know why this happened. I, I wanted to know how he could let this happen to us. You see, this morning as we look at the book of Revelation we're actually looking at one of the most painful questions people have about God. If he's good, why do bad things happen to us? He is good. Why does life feel like we hit trial and suffering and heartache? Wouldn't a good God want to spare us from that? Wouldn't a good God be able to step in and do something so that we don't have to go through these things? And for many of you, this question is painful, isn't it? Because there's something going on in your life that right now you are trying to make sense of. You're trying to reconcile why a God who says he loves you would let you have cancer. Why a God who says he loves you and will provide for you would let you not have kids would let you watch a loved one die way before you were ready or anyone else was ready? How do you make sense of a good God that would allow endless violence in our cities to simply continue or let the the terror in places like Israel and Gaza just, just go on to allow tsunamis and hurricanes and earthquakes to take thousands and thousands of lives every year? I mean, how do we make sense of that? As you're asking this question, if God is good. Why, why, why do we experience suffering? You're asking this question because, you, because it, it is a painfully familiar and a profoundly personal question. Right? And this is not theoretical or philosophical. We're not just talking about the problem of evil this morning, a deeply, though, personal question. And it's important for all of us to wrestle with because the reality is how we make sense of suffering says a lot about how we view God. And it makes a huge difference for how we're able to endure through suffering. Let me say that one more time. How you and I make sense of suffering, how we understand it, how we explain it, how we think about it, how we process suffering, makes a huge difference for how we are able to endure through suffering. In fact, maybe it makes a difference for whether or not we're able to endure through it at all. And to guide our conversation today, we're going to look first at some ancient wisdom, from the Old Testament in what is arguably one of the oldest stories in the Bible. We're going to look at the story of Job. And I find that fascinating that Job's story raises this same question. uh, If God is good, why do we experience suffering? Because that that tells us that this is an ancient question. This is not just uh, what modern folks think of or postmodern folks think of when we try and understand religion or the goodness of God. This is what people have wrestled with forever. We're going to look at the story of Job and we're going to see that his story is like that ring we talked about, the setting for the diamond that Revelation is. Job is going to raise the question and Revelation is going to answer that question, but in order for us to deeply uh, appreciate and understand the answer that Revelation gives, we need to look at the setting, that ring, first. And we're going to see four reminders in Job's story that help us make sense of suffering, because again, how we make sense of suffering makes a huge difference, in fact, all the difference in the world for how we We endure through suffering. And it's my goal that as we walk away today, we don't just walk away with a better understanding of what God may do at some point in the future, but that we walk away with a fixed, unshakable hope that we take with us through our suffering. So let me pray and we'll get started. Father, I pause now knowing that your word speaks powerfully to your people. And wherever we may be at today, we ask that as we open your word, you would speak to us. Some of us are wrestling deeply with this question. And it's not just a theoretical question but we we are asking God, why would you allow this thing to happen to me? Why didn't you spare my son? Why didn't you spare my neighbor? Why didn't you spare my wife? We're asking a profoundly personal question. We ask that you would comfort us by your Holy Spirit and by your word that you would comfort us with the message of the book of Revelation. A book written not to confuse, but to comfort us here and now. So Lord, we trust you to do a work that is far greater than just what I can write and say. We trust you to do a work as you speak to us through your word and accomplish your will in our lives through it. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Like I said, we're going to be jumping in and out of the story of Job this morning. A lot of our time is going to be in Job, and I promise we will get to the book of Revelation. Uh, But the beginning of the book of Job, we are given the first reminder. Remember, we're going to see four reminders here. Here's the first one that helps us make sense of suffering so that we can endure through suffering. Here it is. Reminder number one. We live in a broken world where suffering is a reality. Look at me at uh, Job uh, chapter one, verse one. It says this, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. You see, Job was a good man. On top of this, Job was incredibly blessed by God with all that he had. Ten grown children, thousands and thousands of livestock, enough workers to care for them. Job was set, man. Job is a good man living the good life. He didn't got to worry about anything. But his life begins to radically Unravel. Where everything good in Job's life becomes undone. I mean, his, his marriage starts to fall apart, where where his, his wife sees what's happening to him and just, just I mean, her counsel to him is is curse God and die. I mean, that, that's not great counsel from your wife uh, if you get that counsel, right? Something's wrong in that relationship. He sees his his livestock being taken away. We're told he's sitting there enjoying the good life when one of his servants frantically comes up to him and explains to him that he was just out in the field, another war band of people came through, killed everybody else, took the livestock, and he's the only one to escape uh, and to to give Job Job this message, right? And then that happens again. Another worker comes up, tells him the same thing happened in another one of his fields, I mean, this is, this is everything that Job owns is gone in a matter of moments. I mean, just put that in your own world for a moment. I mean, it, it's like it like would say, his investments have all failed. His accounts have been emptied. His life's work is gone. What would it feel like to have every single safety net pulled right out from under you in a matter of moments? I mean, do you mean, know, do you know that, like, gut punch Feeling that that wave of panic that can crash over you. I mean, that, that's what Job is feeling in this moment as he has everything taken from him. And while he's even processing that, I mean, th- those are just his things. Job sees one more worker running over to him, and he recognizes this one. This worker came from the house where his sons and daughters were gathered. He begins to tell Job that his kids were having dinner and the house collapsed. None of them survived. He can hardly even speak at this point. And if that weren't enough, Job's health is taken from him as his body is covered in sores. Three of his friends hear about what happened to him, and so they come to be with their friend, like any good friends would do. Look at me at Job chapter two, verse twelve. But when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, I know we can't fully resonate with everything Job experienced, right? But every single one of us has seen real suffering at some point in our lives, whether it happened to us or around us. And, and, and I think that that brings us back to our question, doesn't it? If God is good, why, why, why do bad things happen? Why is suffering a part of life at all? In the book of Genesis, I think we're given some clarity for why we experience suffering. You may know the story well already. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, the first people God created were in a garden and they were given freedom to do what they wanted, but they chose to ignore God, uh, what God commanded, and were disobedient. In the storyline of the Bible, Adam and Eve's choice to go against God sets up a trajectory in the human experience so that all, uh, all of us now are affected by what they did. You might think, think about it this way. There, are, there is suffering in this life for three reasons, and sometimes a combination of three reasons, but here they are. There is suffering because of my sin, because of your sin and or because of our sin. Let me explain these a little bit. That first reason I experience suffering uh, is because of my sin, right? We just, just think about ourselves. We, we, we experience suffering because of the things that, that, that I do. That is my failure to live the way God has created me to live. Doing what he told me not to do and not doing what he told me to do. I mean, this is what the Bible calls sin. And suffering can be a consequence of my sin. Let me give you an example. If as a parent, I spend the majority of my time parenting, showing uh, the anger to my kids... And having these uncontrollable outbursts, which, which happens, I mean, if you know me, and we're going to get to know each other well over the next many years, God willing, right? like one, one of the deep issues I wrestle with is anger. Right? If I spend my energy as a parent being angry, and that plays out in my kid's life, and they grow up wanting nothing to do with me, pushing back against me, wanting to be away from me, right? like there, there is real suffering that does and will come from that. That broken relationship, fractured relationship, there's real suffering there, but we can trace that back to my own sin issues have produced this environment. Doesn't mean the suffering's not real, it is real, but it gets traced back to me. The first reason we suffer is because of my sin. The second reason we suffer is because of your sin or because you sin against me. These are the things that are done to us. Frankly, some of these are things that are unspoken, that that, that we may never have told anybody else about. Something uh, somebody does to you, someone who you thought you could trust takes advantage of you. It's when your spouse goes behind your back to conceal things that they've done. It's when a coworker selfishly throws you under the bus, when, when a classmate begins to sped, spread false uh, uh, stories about who you are, lies about you, or the Bible often describes suffering as something we experience because we are sinned against. And these first two categories are, are pretty easy to see, I think, right? We, we can see how my sin, how your sin can lead to suffering, but... But what about the things that aren't directly or neatly my fault or your fault? The third reason we experience suffering is very nuanced. We've got to think carefully around this. It's because of our sin. See, part of the whole story of the Bible is that sin does not just affect you and me individually, it affects everything. In fact, it says, All creation groans under the weight or the curse of sin. Everything is affected. The world we live in now does not function the way God originally created it to function. It has, in a sense, been corrupted or marred by sin. And because we live in a world where sin is a reality, we live in a world uh, where brokenness and sorrow and suffering is real. I mean, this is the reason we have things like disease and disaster and death. Here's the thing. This is not how God created the world to function. So it might even be helpful to think about it this way. As a result of Adam and Eve, we now live in a world that is a broken world. And suffering is a part of that brokenness. Why am I telling you this? Because when we understand that we live in a broken world, that this isn't the way things are supposed to be, we can start to see that there is a way. Uh, to, to say that this isn't the way it is at the same time to say that there is a way it's supposed to be, that, this is, that there is a uh, beginning of understanding a reason for suffering. Which means what you encounter in this life, the heartache, the pain, the suffering you encounter in this life, is not meaningless. We can begin to make sense of suffering. And this is the first thing we need to remind ourselves when we ask the question, if God is good, why do bad things happen? That reminder is that we live in a broken world and suffering is a part of that world. It's a reflection of that brokenness. It's the reason Job experienced suffering. It's the reason we experience suffering. We live in a broken world where suffering is a reality. Here's the second reminder. The story of Job continues. We're giving that second reminder that will help us make sense of suffering so that we can endure through suffering. Here it is. We won't always know why we experience suffering. Much of what follows this first part of Job's story is this long, drawn-out conversation that Job has with his three friends as they start looking for an explanation. Look at me at Job chapter 3. Verse 1 says this After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. I mean, Job starts with mourning over what has happened to him. And really says that the pain he feels is so deep, he wished he's never been born. And as he continues to talk with his friends over the next 35 chapters, Job says uh, he, he doesn't think that he's done anything wrong. right? So, so he can't make sense of why any of this has happened to him. And, and his friends subtly at first begin to explain to Job that, hey, bro, you, you're, not, you're not reflecting enough on your life. You must have done something to anger God. Otherwise, in their minds, these things wouldn't ever have happened to him. And so they have this back and forth with each other over this. And eventually Job gets to the point where where he demands that God either explain why all of these things have happened to him or just take his life because none of it makes sense anymore. And and you can feel the tension rise in Job's questions as he cries out to God with the resounding uh, question, why? Why did this happen to me? It's the same question that you and I have. God, why did you let this happen to me? Why did you let this happen? And like I said earlier, how we explain suffering to ourselves, man, it says a lot or reveals a lot about how we actually view God, doesn't it? See, Job's friends can look at God and see him as this hard-lined black and white judge. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. You reap what you sow, end of story. And so in their minds, Job must have done something. And I think if we're honest, many of us have a very similar view of God. Maybe, Maybe without even realizing it. You may not have even put words to this before. And isn't it true that so often one of the first things we think in the face of suffering is God is punishing me for something So just like Job's friends we can easily find ourselves not believing in the God of the Bible who yes is pictured as a judge but also as a loving father who knows what we need before we even open up our mouths to ask, who delights to give good gifts to his children, who is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. And instead of believing in that God, we end up in believing something that's a whole lot more like karma. Right? That we simply get what's coming to us, both the good and the bad. See, how we explain suffering says, or reveals a lot about how we view God. And some of us walk away thinking that he is just cold and cruel and want nothing more to do with him. And that may be you today. Reflecting back and thinking about how you've walked through suffering. Maybe the conclusion you've come to is God must not care. Or he, he's certainly not good, at least not good to you. And finally, God responds to Job. This, this powerful moment in his story. And to be honest, uh, God's response is, is not what we would expect. In fact, we might not even like it at first. Chapter 38, verse 4. He says, where were you, Job? When I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely, you know who stretched the line upon it or on on what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. You see, essentially God tells Job, hey, I will answer your questions when you can answer mine. And he begins to ask Job a series of questions, questions that only God himself would know how to answer. In other words, God reminds Job that he is not God. And so there are things he does not know. There are things he cannot know. And so to be sure, uh, it is not God simply saying, hey, I'm God, I can do whatever I want, so step off, bro. No, see, God is giving Job just a glimpse, just a glimpse of his unsearchable His unending greatness. And it is as Job begins to see God for who he is that he can finally start to trust God with what he does. But in all of what God says here, there's something missing. In answer. I mean, God never explains to Job why he experienced the suffering that he did. And yet God not giving an answer is one of the most profound parts of this story. If God really is good, then why do bad things still happen? Friends, in the second part of Job's story, we are reminded that oftentimes we don't know. And some of you may need to hear this today. It's okay for you to say that when you're sitting across with one of your friends and they're asking like how would, how would god allow this to happen to me as a follower of jesus it's okay for you to say i don't know Now, that's not to say we never see reasons for our suffering, but sometimes we're able to see that God was using a very difficult season to shape us for the next one. In fact, uh, elsewhere in the Bible, the book of Romans, we are reminded that God is able to use all things in our lives to bring about good, right? And we we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called according to his uh, purposes, Romans 8, 28, and praise God, that is true but we are reminded in the story of Job that we might never really see or fully see why or how God is able to use suffering for good. Romans tells us that he uses it for good, not necessarily that we will see why or how he uses it for good. Courtney and I still don't know how God could use our experience for good or why he would need to use that kind of experience in the first place. Some of you might be in the same place you have some kind of experience in your life that you you don't know how to make sense of, that you might have asked the same question, how could you use this God? Why? How? Friends, you see, just because there is no good that we can conceive of at this moment in time does not mean there is no good God could ever bring from it. You see, in the first part of Job's story, we are reminded that bad things happen because we live in a broken uh, world. The second reminder is that we won't always know why we suffer. But those two things by themselves are not enough because by themselves, they don't offer any hope. See, by themselves, these two reminders fail to address the deeper question we're actually asking when we ask, if God is good, why do bad things happen to me? See, the deep down uh, question we're asking when we experience profound sorrow and suffering, what we really want to know is, has God forgotten me? Has he abandoned me? Does He love me? Friends, this is the third reminder for us tonight that helps us make sense of suffering, so that we can endure through suffering. That God is with us even in our suffering. And frankly, this is what makes the Christian story so utterly unique because it is only in the Christian story that God does not simply watch our suffering from afar, but he himself actually steps into our suffering. He He enters into the human experience to suffer too. You see, it is in the person of Jesus, the the creator of all things, who enters into the broken world that we live in, embodied in flesh to take on our own heartache and our own trouble. It is Jesus who is the new and better Adam, who lived in perfect obedience to all of what God commanded. And yet on the cross, it is Jesus who experiences cosmic abandonment as he cries out, my God, my God, why? why have you forsaken me? You see the same question we ask, Jesus asks. He's nailed to a cross, dying the death that we should have died in our place for our sin and brokenness. Yet the good news we proclaim as followers of Jesus is that he did not stay dead, but rose again from the dead with the promise and hope for new life. For any and all who would trust in him to pledge their allegiance in him and him alone. You see, the reality is the Christian story does not offer us any concrete reasons for our suffering. It doesn't. But what we see in the story of Jesus is that when we put our faith in what he has done, we can have hope in the midst of our suffering because God is with us in our suffering. And so he has not forgotten us. He has not abandoned us. He has not, uh, we are not unloved. In fact, it is the story of the cross that confirms God takes our suffering so seriously that he takes it on himself. Friends, Jesus suffered and died alone so that we wouldn't have to. Even in our suffering, he is with us. And still, that is not the end of the story. You see, when we look at the last part of Job's story, we are given the fourth reminder that will help us make sense of suffering so that we can endure through suffering. And honestly, this is where we see the true diamond set in its place. The story of Revelation is summed up here in this final chapter of Job, this final reminder, the thing that we've spent 10 weeks building up to in our series. Here it is, reminder number four. God's plan is to one day do away with all suffering. Job's story ends in an interesting way. Look with me at the end of the book, chapter 42. And after God responds to Job with all the questions that he asks, and even after he's not given Job an answer, the story ends with all of what Job lost in his suffering being restored to him. He's given seven sons, three daughters. And so in, in, in a sense, his family is restored. The last thing we're told is that Job lived many years after this point. So his health is restored. He's still married. So his marriage is restored. And all of what Job lost in his suffering, God makes right. Now, I, I, I read that and you may have had this experience too. And it, just, it, it seems a little too perfect of an ending. But you see, Job's story is actually a foreshadow of the larger story of the Bible and God's plan to do away with suffering. And as God worked to restore what Job lost in his suffering as followers of Jesus, we have the same hope and promise now that one day God will also restore all of what we've lost in our suffering That there will be a day when we suffer uh, no more and all things are made right. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we are given a glimpse as to what this restoration will look like. Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more Friends, this is the hope we have in Jesus. It is not simply a message about how to get to heaven when you die. It is a message about the world made right and the place we find in that world through faith in Jesus. It is the message that at the end of the day when all is said and done for followers of Jesus we will experience complete and an utter end to all that is wrong in the world whereas Samwise Gamgee in the Lord of the Rings says where everything sad will come untrue. And yet even at the end of Revelation as we have this glorious diamond we look forward to we have to acknowledge that there is an other side to this. That while followers of Jesus who experience suffering here and now, we can look forward to a day when that will all be righted. Meaning that what we experience right now is as bad as it possibly gets. And on the other side of this, for those who are not followers of Jesus, even the suffering we have now is as good as we can hope it to be outside of a relationship with God. Friends, if you're here today and are not a follower of Jesus, where the story of Revelation confronts us is that there is this hope we can cling to and look forward to, but if you are not tied to Jesus, if you are not a follower of Jesus, having pledged your allegiance to him and him alone, this life is as good as it gets. And on the other end of that is eternal suffering and pain and hardship. It's why the scriptures often call this place weeping and uh, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, where uh, we get sidetracked in talking about hell. Sometimes we only think of it in terms of uh, fire and an inferno. In fact, I think our, our idea of hell is so much more shaped by uh, the 15th century work of Dante's Inferno than it is by the Bible. But what we see in the consistent witness in the scripture is that hell is a place of eternal suffering. My plea with you today, is to turn to Jesus. That you would take hold of the true hope we have in him and enter in to the kingdom that we long for in Jesus. And so now, even through suffering... For those of us who trust in Christ, there is hope for the day when God will make all things right, Well, he will restore all of what is lost, where he will do away with suffering once and for all. This is the kingdom that Jesus will fully establish here on earth as it already is in heaven. This is what we look forward to. This is what we fix our hope to. Friends, if God is good, why do bad things happen? Well, when we look to the full story of Job and the full story of Revelation, we see the diamond set in its ring. We get help answering this question because we are reminded that, yes, we live in a broken world where suffering is a reality. And yes, we might not always know why we experience suffering, but the Christian story reminds us that we we are able to endure through suffering because in Jesus, God suffers with us. And his plan is to one day do away with suffering. An eternity where there is no more pain. And friends, this is the true beginning of what God will ultimately do forever. I love how this is pictured at the end of C.S. Lewis' famous uh, allegory of the Christian worldview, the Chronicles of Narnia. If you know the story, you know it follows four children who discover this magical land of Narnia, and they, they, they live an entire lifetime and eons in the, the land of Narnia. And I love how this entire storyline ends as C.S. Lewis himself is trying to capture the major themes of the book of Revelation, and he writes this, he says, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray.